Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Gracious Father, you have spoken to us in these, your words, but help us to understand them. Help us to hear what our Lord Jesus is teaching us, what he's calling us to, and to follow him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. got a question for you to think about. I'm going to give you three things, and I want you to think about what connects them, what makes these three things similar, but it's going to test your knowledge a little bit. So here are the three things. First, Akira Kurosawa's film Rashomon. That's number one. Number two, Ian Pear's novel, An Instance of the Finger Post. And number three, Olivier Messiaen's piano suite, Vingt Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus, or 20 regards or glances at the infant Jesus. Uh, I'll give you a chance to think about that. And anyone who wants to tell me what these three works have in common, just raise your hands. And I just wanted to say that in church, I see that hand. Uh, I have one at the back, but I'm not going to answer that one because that's the person who told me about Messian in the first place. What all three of these works have in common is this, that all three of them take a single story 
and they look at it from various angles to peel back layers. Uh, Rashomon is a famous Japanese movie. It's probably the most famous example of this in film, where a single tale is told, but through the eyes of multiple characters, so that by the end you see the story entirely differently. Ian Pear's novel, An Instance of the Finger Post, I might be one of two people who read it, but it is that thick, and when you read books that are that thick, you get to make sermon illustrations about them. Same thing. In that massive book, one story is retold essentially in like four different genres of story. And by the time you finish, the way you see what happens is entirely transformed. In the musical piece, in Messiaen's 20 glances, 20 contemplations of the baby Jesus, each of the 20 pieces is a musical contemplation, meditation on the birth of Christ, but from the perspective of uh, the Father, from the perspective of Mary, from the perspective of the sun and the moon, from the perspective of the angels, all of these different angles, these perspectives on the birth of Christ, so that by the end of it, you have this, this rich and layered appreciation and understanding of that one single event. The reason I bring this up is that as we think about the story of this rich young man who comes to Jesus, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look at this one episode, but we're going to look at it from three different angles, through three sets of eyes. We're going to look at the literal reading through the eyes of the righteous rich, the story of that supposedly righteous and definitely rich young man who goes to Jesus very confident that he has kept the law. And we'll see what we can learn from this. And the center of gravity of that reading is in that first section of the text in your order of worship. But then we're going to look at what we might call the practical reading. Here we're going to see through the eyes of the baffled believer, through the eyes of the disciples, especially Peter, And the center of gravity here will be the third section that you have in your order of worship. That's verses 27 through 30, if you're looking in your Bible. And then finally, we're going to look at a third angle, a third perspective, which I'm going to call the redemptive historical angle through the eyes of the sacrificial Savior. And the center of gravity there is right in the middle, in that center section of our text. And that's all we're going to do. We're just going to look at the same story through three sets of eyes and try to understand it better and more deeply as we go. So let's start with the literal reading, the surface level, through the eyes of the righteous rich. This young man is wealthy. He clearly believes he's also righteous. And I think from the reaction of the disciples and a clue that we get in Mark's gospel. He's not entirely wrong about that either. He's not just self-deluded, although there may be a little bit of that. Like he comes to Jesus. If you look at the parallel in Mark chapter 10, he, he rushes to Jesus and throws himself down at Jesus' feet with his questions. There's an attitude of a posture. Uh, he's the student. He wants to be taught by the good teacher. And so he goes to Jesus in that spirit. And and Mark says 
uh, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So that tells us a little bit about how we might regard this man as we think about his question. Jesus loves him. Now, I know you may be thinking to yourself, oh, but Jesus loves everybody. But that's not what Mark says. Mark doesn't say Jesus looked upon him and loved him, you know, in the same way that he loves everybody, with this sort of very equal measure of affection, and we shouldn't read too much into this. No, he makes a note of it, and that's not true in every instance. We didn't just see in the first episode, and Jesus gazed upon the Pharisees, and he loved them. Right? We didn't get that note. I'm not saying there wasn't some divine affection in that episode too, but here it's pointed out to us. Like this is special. This is telling us something important. Jesus loves him, but tests him. From the very beginning, this man comes to Jesus with his question, and as soon as Jesus begins to answer, Jesus is testing. He's pushing back. He's asking questions of his own as well. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus asks him. Or in Mark's gospel, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. There's only one source of good. Why are you coming to me with this? People read this and and read all sorts of things into it. Like, why is Jesus distancing himself from goodness? Why is he saying, uh, don't come to me, only God is good if Jesus himself is God. But again, he's testing this man's assumption. Someone comes to him and says, uh, tell me the good thing that I need to do. And Jesus is saying, hey, hold on, define good for me. Tell me what you mean by good. Why are you coming to me with this question? This young man is doing something that a lot of well-intentioned people do. He's going to a wise man. He's going to a great teacher, and he's asking for wisdom. He's asking for input on something that God has already said. He wants to know, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? And Jesus basically says, why are you coming to me? Hasn't this question already been answered? Hasn't God already spoken on this? And when Jesus answers the question, he doesn't come up with some new angle or insight. He just repeats to the man what God has already said. This would-be disciple is coming to Jesus from the very beginning. In his question and in Jesus' response, it seems pretty obvious that he's harboring some false assumptions. He's harboring false assumptions about himself, but also about the way this works. He's coming to Jesus convinced that eternal life is a thing that a man could earn if only he knew what the good thing is that he has to do. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? To ask a question like that in the first place, you have to assume that salvation is earned through human work. So Jesus answers him the way Scripture answers him, the way Moses would have answered, the way the Old Testament answers. Jesus says, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And the man says, which ones? Which commandments are you talking about? So Jesus spells them out for him. He lists a series of commandments, specifically the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, the ninth commandment, and then he goes back to 
the fifth commandment, and then he adds from Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives them a selection of what you might think of as the outward-focused commandments. These are the ones that if we're looking at you, we can tell whether you're keeping these commandments or not. The answer also suggests that the answer to the question, what do I have to do in order to have eternal life, is you have to be perfect. What is required is perfect obedience. You have to keep the law. That's how high the standard is. What a terrifying prospect it would be to go to Jesus with this question and have him answer, keep the commandments. A terrifying prospect to you and to me. Not to him, though. He's not daunted at all. He's ready for more. He says, all these have I kept. Is there anything else that I need to do? So Jesus plays along and says, why, yes, now that you mention it, there is. If you would be perfect, if you would be complete, if you would be whole, then go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. If you would be perfect, so perfection is the standard that is required. If you want to do that, and you've already kept the law, something further is required. Yes, obedience is necessary, but also sacrifice. These two things, obedience, keeping the law, and sacrifice, selling all that you have, giving it to the poor, coming and following me. And once Jesus says this, it turns out that is too much to ask. Matthew says, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, given Jesus' love for this man, that going away would have been sorrowful not just for him, but for Jesus as well. And given the way that the disciples react, I think for them, it was that way too. We might imagine that these working class fishermen saw a scene like this and we were like, yeah, Jesus, stick it to the rich. It's hard for those guys to get into heaven. That's not the way they react at all. Remember, their question is, when they see this, who then can be saved? Like, they are shocked at what Jesus is saying to this man, which suggests to me not only that they perceive a man who is wealthy, but a man who is outwardly righteous. He's not a mere hypocrite. He's been living a good life. He really thinks that the words that he's speaking are not empty, but actually have some truth to them. But he's wrong. Jesus explains to those baffled disciples, he says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, like he's reiterating it in case you didn't get the point, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In this first reading, I want you to sit with that for just a little bit, these words that Jesus says, because I think it's easy to dismiss them and say, well, I don't think he means this. Because we all kind of aspire to have more than we have. Like wherever you are on the spectrum, you probably don't think of yourself as rich, but you're open to becoming richer, right? Not insanely rich, like one of those obnoxious people, but, but more than you are now. 
And you'd like to think that that kind of a, a growth and progress towards wealth would reflect a blessing, right? That that would be a blessing. But Jesus is talking about it like it could be the opposite. Like that could actually be an obstacle or a hindrance. If you think about it, that does make sense, right? You can see in the lives of other people, maybe even in yourself, that material comfort can blind us to spiritual need. That when we have a lot, when our cares, our concerns are provided for, it's easy to lie to ourselves about our true condition. Also, if you have wealth, it's easy to think that your riches are a sign of God's favor. That, that what you have is a reward for your righteousness. It's not a surprise that this guy could go before Jesus and be confident that he is a keeper of the law because I'm sure a lot of people imagine that what he enjoys in this life is a sign of God's favor. He's living in a bubble, right? Where he's constantly being told this about himself. Even the disciples probably regard him in a similar light. It's only Jesus who tests him. Only Jesus who holds up the mirror and shows him that he isn't what he thinks he is. And Jesus does the same thing to us. If we actually listen to what he's saying, it is the same thing to us. That your aspirations, that the things that you have and value can be an obstacle to your faith. Where's your treasure? That's the question. Where is your treasure? Now, in the first part of Matthew 18, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, he really only reiterates and unpacks something with them that he's already preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And here, same deal. He's unpacking something he already taught in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in this episode, Jesus puts his finger on this man's heart where his treasure is, the thing he cannot do without. If you're telling yourself that you're righteous, if you're coming to Jesus looking for the little extra thing that you need to do to ensure that you are in God's favor, there are two things you need to think about. First, you need to know that no matter what you imagine, you are not keeping the law. No matter how righteous you think you are in comparison to other people, you're not even close to being able to make the statement this man makes. All these have I kept. You haven't. If you have any illusions about that, go to the Westminster Larger Catechism and read the series of questions that explain what the duties required of the commandments are and what the sins forbidden by the commandments are, and you will discover not only have you not kept them all, but you haven't kept any of them. Have no illusion about that. Secondly, know that people who imagine things like this about themselves, who imagine that they've kept the law, who imagine that they are doing okay, tend to have their treasure in the wrong place. These things go 
together. Eternal life isn't just about what you keep. It's also about what you give up. In a literal reading, we could take that away and we could be done. We could say, yes, Jesus warns us, wealth can be an obstacle. Don't delude yourself. Don't think you're righteous. Don't think you can keep the law. Maybe you've been blessed, but don't read too much into that. Great. But there's actually more here. There's another angle to this story, another layer to unpack if we look at this same episode through the eyes of the baffled believer. This is the practical reading in which a hard lesson is discerned from this episode. And if we need a practical set of eyes in this story, I think you know the person to go to is going to be Peter. All of the disciples join together in bafflement when they hear what Jesus says, who then can be saved? But Peter's looking at this thing and the wheels are turning and he's making an observation here. Maybe he's seeing something that the other guys are not seeing. While they're kind of like like kicking themselves and wondering, like if this guy won't have eternal life, then what hope is there for anyone? This practical-minded fisherman puts his finger on the practical application of the story. What is the theme of the story of the rich man? The theme is sacrifice because that's what he won't do. That's the line he won't cross. Jesus is talking about sacrifice and the rich man's problem is that he won't make the sacrifice that Jesus calls him to before he can come and follow Jesus. The cost is too great. But Peter realizes that the sacrifice that that man won't make, we have made. We're here. We have left everything behind to follow him. Now, we didn't have as much as this man, but we had, we had. And when he called us, we left it behind and we followed him. So Peter, thinking very practically, turns to Jesus and says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? We've done what he didn't do, so what do we get that he doesn't get? That's the question that Peter is asking. And as you think about the story, he has a point. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, when you read Luke 14, the heading on that section is often something like the cost of discipleship, right? Discipleship has a cost to it. There is a sacrifice involved. But for the one who does it, the one who bears the cost, there are rewards, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Which is an echo of the promises that Jesus himself makes in reply to Peter's question. You will reign with me. You will receive a hundredfold for everything that you have lost. And you shall have eternal life. That's what he says to Peter. 
There's no discipleship without sacrifice, but for the disciple, there's no sacrifice without greater reward. Or there's an assurance that, that what Jesus is asking of this man is not impossible. What Jesus is asking of this man is not even depressing. When you read his story and Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. If you read that and you think this is an unthinkable ask on Jesus' part, you're actually wrong. It's not. Because everything that man would sacrifice to follow Jesus would be repaid a hundredfold in the life to come. It would be like nothing to him in comparison to what he gained. Many people faced with that dilemma chose differently, left everything behind and followed Jesus. Now that's a hard lesson, right? When Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. But Peter sees, like we've learned a hard lesson. Like it may be hard to make a sacrifice, but there are promises that accompany that sacrifice. But ask yourself, does Jesus really mean it when he says this to the rich young man? Does he really mean sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me? Or is he just testing him again? Is this just a test? And I think that would be more comforting. I know when I first heard this story as, as a young man who aspired to, to, to vast wealth, um, hasn't happened yet. There's always time. I really wanted to believe that Jesus didn't literally mean this, right? How could he possibly mean this? He's just testing him. And probably what would have happened, it would have been similar to Abraham in Genesis when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then he went out to do it. But before he could actually do it, the angel stopped him. I told myself probably something like this would have happened. The rich man would have said, okay, cool. Let me get all my stuff and start to sell it and give it to the poor. And Jesus would have went, no, 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 no. Okay, good. Thank you. I just wanted to make sure, keep it, and follow me. Because that's what I wanted to hear. That's the kind of Savior I was hoping we had who wouldn't ask too much of us in this life. Remember a phrase you've heard me before, the Jesus who suffered so that we don't have to. That kind of thing. But I don't think you can read this and Peter's response and Jesus' answer and, and believe that Jesus doesn't mean what he's saying, at least in the case of this man, this man needed to do this. This was an obstacle in his path, and he needed to leave it behind in order to follow Jesus, and he ought to have done that as well. No, he couldn't earn salvation by selling everything that he had. That wasn't the great work he could do in order to have eternal life. That's not the plan of salvation, and yet... I think he ought to have followed Christ regardless of the sacrifice. We're called to obey and we're called to sacrifice. You can't earn eternal life by keeping the law, but you've still been called to righteous obedience. And you can't earn eternal life by leaving everything behind, but you have still been called to sacrifice. Like your obedience and your sacrifice, those calls are real, even though they won't save you. Because your obedience is a reflection of Christ's righteousness. Your sacrifice is a reflection of Christ's sacrifice. You know, you don't obey and sacrifice to win the reward. You obey and sacrifice because the reward has been won. Of course, you can't just do these things 
and then get eternal life. That's not the way it works. And realizing that is what prompts the despair. Realizing that Jesus is talking about eternal life like it's a much harder thing to obtain than the disciples thought is what prompts them to say, who then can be saved? If it's that hard, who can do it? Jesus doesn't say, guys, chill out. It's easy. Just sell everything you have and you'll be saved. Jesus doesn't say, guys, don't worry about it. It's, it's simple. It, it costs nothing. Jesus actually says, with man, this is impossible. That's his response. When they say, how can anyone be saved? His response is, with man, this is impossible. You can't keep the law. You can't make the sacrifice. But then he says, with God, all things are possible. And where have you heard that before? Where have you heard that idea before? The angel Gabriel told Mary that she, even though she was a virgin, would bear the Messiah. And further, he told her that her cousin Elizabeth, even though she was barren, would give birth to John the Baptist. And when Mary wondered how this was possible, Gabriel assured her, for nothing will be impossible with God. When you hear God boasting about how he will do what is impossible, think about what he has done in Christ. How will eternal life be won? Through the impossible work of God in Jesus Christ and no other way. And that brings us to our final reading, the deepest layer of the story, the redemptive historical layer. Those two words put together, redemptive historical, just suggest the way that God has had a plan to redeem or to save his people and that he has worked that plan out over time, over the course of history, so that we can actually look at the history of the world, of the human race, and we can see this thread of God's plan of redemption running all the way through it. When we look at the world that way, we're looking at it through the eyes of the sacrificing Savior. Jesus speaks to this rich man. He tells this rich man rightly, that for eternal life, there must be perfect obedience and complete sacrifice. Now, this man can't keep the law and he can't bring himself to make the sacrifice. Actually, no man could do those things except for the man that he's talking to, Jesus. The things that Jesus is calling this man to are the things that Jesus himself actually does. Now, when theologians talk about the obedience of Jesus they divide his obedience into two categories. They'll talk about the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Now, the active obedience means Jesus' perfect keeping of the law. Like Jesus does what Adam failed to do, and in doing it gets what Adam failed to obtain for the human race. In the garden, there was a promise through obedience, through keeping the law, humanity would have attained to life. Jesus does that work, which is why in the New Testament, he's referred to as the last Adam. Like he completes that failed work on behalf of his people. Passive obedience is the other kind of obedience, and that term's misleading because it doesn't mean not active. Here, passive 
refers to passion or suffering. The way that Jesus is obedient unto death. That's also part of the work that he accomplishes for salvation. Because of the debt of sin, more was required of Jesus at the cross than was required of Adam in the garden before there had been sin. Now, obedience was required, but also sacrifice to suffer for atonement for sin, to give up everything for the sake of us poor sinners. That's what Jesus had to do so that we might have eternal life. As I said, this layer is the deepest layer of the story because as Jesus is teaching these moral lessons underneath it all, he's also showing what work he must perform, what he has to accomplish so that the question posed at the beginning can actually be answered. So that when we ask, how can we have eternal life? The answer doesn't have to be, with man it is impossible. Through Christ, the answer is, with God, all things are possible. Obviously, no amount of obedience on the part of that rich man, overconfident as he was, could have earned salvation for himself, let alone the whole human race, no amount of sacrifice he made, no matter how wealthy he was, would have made a difference in his own salvation, let alone yours. But Jesus isn't just calling us as people to obedience and sacrifice that's impossible for us to perform. He's also pointing us to the obedience and the sacrifice that he himself will make for us and calling us to follow him as a response. So you might think of it this way. That rich man, his imagined righteousness, it was a type, it was a shadow, a sad shadow, but pointing to something greater, pointing to, picturing for us the real righteousness of the Son of God. In the same way that his wealth, though great in human eyes, was nothing compared to the the riches of God, the, the divine wealth, you might say, of the Creator, And yet, it pictures and points to all that divine wealth that Jesus left behind in order to come and be one of us and to sacrifice himself for us. If Jesus calls you to righteousness, it's because he himself is your righteousness. If Jesus calls you to leave everything and follow him, it's because he left everything to unite you to him. As we close, I want you to think about Peter's question and let his question be your question. It's the most selfish question in the whole thing. Peter's great for that kind of stuff. Peter's great for saying the thing that you might think, but you wouldn't say out loud. Peter actually says to Jesus, what then will we have? Look at what we've sacrificed. What do we get? That's the question that I want you to make your question. Because Jesus doesn't bat it away. He answers it. He answers it and says, just wait. Just wait and see. If Christ keeps the law for your sake, what then will you have? If Christ leaves all he has behind and he sacrifices himself for you, what then will you have? The answer, obviously, is everything. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.